I guess it's probably familiar to most of us, the idea of the uh, kings or the wise men or the magi, various descriptions are used, who travel from a great distance from the east, traveling west, arrive in Bethlehem with the purpose of uh, meeting Jesus or seeing this baby. I I guess there's a few things that um, we assume and probably because we're more shaped by uh, the way the story has been kind of constructed in our culture rather than how the Bible actually describes it. So there's a few things that we assume but perhaps aren't quite actually true. It's, uh, it's certainly the case that the wise men definitely didn't arrive on the same night as the shepherds. We often have that little picture, don't we, of uh, Jesus in the manger surrounded by wise men and shepherds and they're all there um, with, the, with the donkey in the background and everybody arrives and then it's great for a nativity in school or whatever it might be, but it's not actually quite uh, the way the Bible describes it. Uh, one of the things that we see is that Herod, who was the king of, of Israel at the time, he was in place as a kind of puppet king on behalf of the Roman authorities who were governing the land at the time. Uh, he's there and he inquires about this birth and these magi who arrive in Jerusalem to find the king, uh, to find this, this baby. And uh, he inquires and the end result of his inquiry when the Magi don't actually go back uh, and inform him, as he says, as we read earlier, that he tells them to go back and tell him where he is, he actually sends troops and orders the execution of all of the children in Bethlehem who are under the age of two. Uh, So that um, gives us a little indication, not an absolute, but a little indication that probably Mary and Joseph by this time had established themselves in in Bethlehem and uh, were living with this little one who had grown up and they had arrived much later. Uh, So we we know that that's probably not the the case. Therefore, it's not this cozy little uh, manger scene, uh, nor did they follow a kind of a star which (laughs) sort of like, you, you know, your Christmas cards, it kind of hovers around about 150 foot in the air, just really bright, bright shining kind of neon light, 150 foot up in the air, that snakes its way across the country and then hangs over uh, this little stable scene in Bethlehem. Rather, what we get the impression or the understanding is that these uh, astronomical observers, probably interested in the first forms of astrology, saw something in the sky, some uh, astronomical Um, occurrence which they had been studying and thinking about for a long time and they believed that that was something significant and they made the trip. As a result of that, they are, if you like, kind of guided by God to do something completely out of the ordinary. What's more, we don't know that there were three. We assume there might have been three because there were three gifts, but we don't know that there were three wise men. And we definitely, contrary to the carol, we don't actually know their names. Having said that, and kind of, you might look at me and say, do you know what, Paul? Christmas was great <laughs> until you told us all of that. and You kind of pulled the rug out of the whole of the story. You've just blown it. It was a really great story until you came, came along and kind of destroyed it. I, I want to suggest to you that what we actually see is something way more amazing, 
far more, in, far more significant. don't know whether you've ever thought about this. There are four accounts of the life of Jesus in the Bible. Um, most of us are probably aware of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're the first four books of the New Testament. Each one of them give an account of the life of Jesus. Having said that, and if you think about it, the idea of three magi traveling from the east and arriving in Bethlehem seems such a massively significant event, doesn't it? And yet, it's only recorded in one of the, uh, one of the accounts of the Gospels. It's only in Matthew. That's interesting, isn't it? What does that tell us? I want to, uh, I want to suggest this. Rather than the accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all wanting to give to us a historical, chronological set of events, which they are, rather than that, what each of the gospel writers want to do for us is present Jesus, each one from a slightly different perspective each one presenting him in a different way, telling a different aspect to this central figure of history, Jesus. So Mark and John don't actually talk about the birth of Jesus. Matthew and Luke do, but they take different perspectives. Matthew, who wrote the account that we saw earlier, his big concern is this. He wants us to see the idea of Jesus as the King, the coming King, the King who has been promised. So, from the very beginning, as Matthew, the writer of the first gospel that we have in our Bibles, although Mark, in, in historical terms, his was probably the first one to be written, Matthew is the first one that's in our Bibles. He wants us to see Jesus from this point of view. John takes another point of view, Luke another point of view, Mark another point of view, but John wants to, uh, Matthew wants to say, I want you to see that Jesus is the King. That's the key thing that he wants to get across to us. So we've got this little account. Here we've got an incredible event. We've got um, they're described as magi in Matthew's account. That's something like wise men who in those days probably would have been some sort of astrological wise figures, sage-like figures. And by definition, in their culture, which would have been off to the east, possibly... There's various ideas. Some suggest around the Babylon sort of area. Uh, their, their main focus would have ended up with them of being significant ruling individuals in their culture. They would have been significant people, major players. You know, um, with the best will in the world, uh, Russell Grant the astrologer, he, he's not that important, is he? <laughs> not in our culture. But way back in the day, 
people who had these kind of insights would have seriously been significant in the cultures. We see the first um, recordings of astrological investigation going on first in Babylon and playing a major part in the ruling decision-making of the various authorities and the various kingships. We see people who have this kind of uh, perspective and this kind of view playing a major part. So there's our first characters in this story. People who are significant in their land and have decided to do a remarkable thing, which is to leave their land and travel, travel for months. Journeys took a long time in those days. To travel for months and months and arrive in Bethlehem. That's one set of rulers. There's another set of rulers. The rulers are kind of grabbed together into two. They actually, because of their, it seems as though the uh, the, the astronomical event disappeared for a while. And so they go to where they assume the king will be born. Where would you go? If, if, if we were told in our country that there was a new uh, king had been born or heir to the throne had been born, we would immediately assume that it ha- that had happened in London, wouldn't we? Because that is the capital. And so they make that assumption and they travel to Jerusalem. What we find is when they arrive in Jerusalem, what they assumed would be celebrated would be uh, a great event nobody knows about. And yet them turning up, talking about the birth of a king, causes all sorts of consternation in the city. Major upheaval. We're not talking about a city of millions of people. And so rulers arriving in a relatively small city, the word would get around very, very quickly that something massive has gone on. There's massive claims that have gone on. That these rulers have traveled for months and months, they're senior people, and they're saying, we've got a new king. new king has been born. What's going on? The message got all the way up to Herod himself. So we've got one set of rulers, the ones who've made the journey. We've got another set of rulers who are the chief priests and the scribes and King Herod himself. Two kings, if you like, represented. One set of kings who've made a trip. One king who has heard about a new king who has been born. He's absolutely, well, enraged, terrified. Most most rage actually comes from fear, doesn't it? Most rage comes from fear. We're we're frightened of something. Something is going to happen to us. Herod is the classic case. He looks at what has happened. The idea is, in his mind, his throne, his leadership... His rule is under threat. He's terrified. The the action that he takes is really quite simple. Find out where it is. So he goes to his chief priests, uh, his priests and his scribes, and he says, look, 
Go into the Old Testament. Where is this king promised? Isn't that interesting? He goes to his religious leaders and he asks them, where is the king who God has promised going to be born? Their answer is Bethlehem. He called them together, all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law. He asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of all my people, Israel. Isn't that amazing? The leader of God's people goes to the religious leaders and says, where is the king going to be born? They say Bethlehem. And his response, how quickly he came up with it, we're not obvious, it's not obviously clear whether it was a spontaneous decision, but his decision is this. Right, you wise men, you magi, who've made the trip, go and find him. And then come back to me so that I can go and worship him. He had no intention whatsoever of going and worshipping Jesus. Absolutely no intention. His desire was that in finding out where Jesus was, he was going to go and kill him. They don't go back. And because they don't go back, he takes an even more desperate despicable step to go and kill every, ch- every young boy under two in Bethlehem. Historians reckon that that was probably around about 20 children who were killed. A terrible action, isn't it? But isn't it stark? It's stark in two ways. Firstly, it's stark because the ruler of God's people has no intention whatsoever of worshipping the one who God has promised. And yet people who've traveled from a huge distance have every intention of worshipping him. That's incredible, isn't it? That should put us on watch to say whatever is going on here, there is something massively important in what Matthew is conveying to us. The one who decides to include this event in his account. I think it's something like this. Even at the very birth of Jesus, we need to be aware that he is going to be rejected by his people, and yet the world is going to embrace him. What a contrast. What an amazing contrast. In fact, that's why we're here today. It's why you and I are here today. Because the, if you like, the pathway was laid right from the very first Christmas story to open the doors for the whole of the world to come and to worship Jesus. Isn't that amazing? Matthew is making the point that this king is available to the whole world. He's not a king who is exclusive. Not a king for a certain people group. Even his own people refused to accept him, represented by Herod, who wanted to kill him instead. And yet, Jesus as king 
rises above that threat and becomes king to the whole world. That's one way in which it's stark. There's another way in which it's stark. It's this. That story, the unfolding of those events, crushes our idea that the Christmas story is a, is a kind of cute fairy tale event. You know, one of the dangers, it's wonderful to celebrate Christmas as a joyful time. But it's joyful because God came on a rescue mission. That's what makes it joyful. Because the original Christmas story was way off the idea of it being a nice, cute, fairy tale story. Matthew had no intention whatsoever of presenting a story to us that we could just grab a hold of and make nice and, and kind of sanitize and make it okay. It is great. It is wonderful to be able to remember this story. It's, it's great when the kids dress up as, as kings and bring gifts. I'm not saying that isn't wonderful. But you know, when we grow up, when we become adults... We need to revisit the story and not continue to see it through the eyes of the child in the nativity play. We need to grow up and see what was really going on. See the political conflict. See the intrigue. See the hatred towards Jesus right from his very birth. To see that this is a massively significant event. From his very birth, he was under threat. And yet remarkably, because he is who he is, He was preserved because he came on a mission to save a people. So I guess what we see here is a picture of a contrast of responses. One set of kings, I want you to imagine the the picture. Imagine how it worked out actually. They've already arrived in Jerusalem and ended up in the royal court They've been at the highest level of society. They arrive some days later in Bethlehem. And they find a little house. And they, no doubt, as they travel into Bethlehem, we don't know that they rode camels. They might have ridden camels. Whatever it was, they'd have arrived with a spectacular presence. By their very status, they would have arrived in this small town, Bethlehem, and it would have caused a massive stir. And they stop outside a little house, and they go in, and everybody else, everybody else who saw these magi would have been absolutely in awe. You know, we're pretty much, we're pretty much clued in to our celebrity culture these days, aren't we? We know what celebrity is like. We know that there are people who continue to fawn over celebrities. We know that they are noticed, they are recognized, they are seen. This was pre-celebrity. <laughs> but they would have been massively significant people who would have caused a huge stir, who walk up to a little house, who open the door, and although everybody else 
is in awe of them, they end up in awe of a little child. These massively powerful people walk up to this baby or little toddler and they bow down and they worship. It's what we see. They then present gifts. We haven't got time to go into the significance of the gifts. They are massively significant. But they present gifts. In other words, powerful people honor a little baby. A small child. Somewhere between probably six months and two. That rocks our thinking, doesn't it? It rocks our attitudes. You know, I think that one of the greatest challenges for any of us, for any of us to come to faith in Jesus is the idea of we let go of our own personal status in our minds. We have such a view of ourselves, we have such a view of our own significance that to actually humble ourselves and bow before King Jesus so that he becomes king of our lives is a massively difficult thing for us to do. Because we have our own sense of importance. And yet what we see here is three kings who worship a little child. I want to close with this thought. They go in and they worship a little child. You and I, because of where we are located in history, are at a much greater advantage than those three kings. They were willing to go in and worship a little child who they believed was significant in the power and pattern of God's involvement in this world. But we have the opportunity to see how that little child grew up. We have the opportunity to see how he lived. We have the opportunity to come to terms with how he died. We have the opportunity of seeing the claims that he rose again from the dead. We have the opportunity to see the claims that he ascended and returned to heaven as king over all the earth. So we are uniquely privileged over and above these wise magi to see the worth and the sense of worshipping this King Jesus. Although we do at this Christmas time remember a baby born in Bethlehem, I guess we also see the beginning of a life which is worthy of our worship. In fact, which demands our worship. I think that's what Matthew goes on to tell us. He maps out throughout the rest of his book exactly how Jesus really is king. Maybe you've got some time off over these next few days can I encourage you, why not start at the beginning of Matthew? Why not just read that account? Just read the book of Matthew. You know, the reality is you could read the whole of the book in a few hours, but break it up 
Read it over the ne- these next few days. And just keep in mind, Matthew is trying to tell us that this is the king that God has promised, who demands our worship.